Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, June 7, 2016, and this is episode 1802 of the Survival Podcast. This, I think, will be a fun one. Um, I think all the Tuesday shows have gotten to be a lot more fun since I did something that, frankly, some of my podcasting friends, yes, I do have friends that are uh, co-podcasters. I've had a few of them say, I don't, I don't believe what you've done when I changed the Tuesday shows. And they said, basically, you now don't have a say what topics that you really put on the show. You get your guests, you get your Tuesday shows voted on, your Thursday shows are feedback shows, your council shows are feedback shows, your Monday shows are feedback shows, call-in shows are feedback shows, the audience is completely in control. Uh, does that worry you? And I said, no, I think my audience is awesome. And I do get some control because I pick the topics for voting and I pick the things out of the feedback, but this way we're co-creators of the show. And uh, this is the first show of June, and that means that we have a whole new line of shows uh, that have been chosen by the voting last month. Uh, that we're going to be doing. Today we're going to do your first year on a new homestead, taking actions without regretting them. I'll let you know the other three shows that we'll be doing in June, though, the ones that won four years of flux, the rapid changes between now and 2020, uh, that will probably be the cleanup show for the month, because I think that one I'm going to put some real work into. I've got a lot of stuff for it already, but that's going to be a lot of work, that one. Uh, also, I have Eating Like a King on a Below Average Income, that one handily, and uh, that one we'll do next week. And then I have The 12 Planks of Modern Survivalism, a revisit eight years after I first created them. We're going to do that the week after next, and we're going to do that because Tuesday the week after next will be the 21st. The Survival Podcast was born... On June 20th, 2008. So that podcast will be done one day after the Survival Podcast birthday, and that just seems like i got to do it that way. Um, what are we going to talk about today, though, with your first year on the new homestead? Some things, kind of an outline before we get started. I'm going to talk about you know the urge to do things too fast. I'm going to start about t starting out with your infrastructure, your water, your access, your structure, containment, your mobile housing. I'm going to talk about food production, where to start, what not to do. Some big things to not do. And some big things to do, like walking your property and keeping a journal and things like that. I'm going to talk about the most important analysis you can do when it comes to setting up your homestead. And that is an analysis of you. That's actually more important than the land itself. Some really important questions to ask yourself. I'm going to talk about how this is a mindset. It's not really about do you have a great big rural property or even a mid-sized rural property like I do, that this can be done anywhere. And the, 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 the rules are really the same, whether you're doing this in an urban environment or in a totally rural environment. The application will be different. The way to think about it is the same. And some very important things for you to consider that I think trip a lot of people up. And in the end, we're going to talk about making mistakes and how that's not a bad thing if you make mistakes quickly and a safe way and have an exit strategy. It should be a great show. And then I got a pretty cool cleanup song for you today. Uh, before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. 
You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasonings, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. And with that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode I have Better Chemistry and Breeding through DuPont. And I have the first child labor laws in slavery. And I have three bullet points that I'll save for later because you'll see why in a second. I'm going to go ahead and read Better Chemistry and Breeding through DuPont. The DuPont family has just opened a gunpowder mill near Wilmington, Delaware, but not too near. It's built on the foundations of a burnt-out cotton mill. E.I. DuPont once worked in France's powder mills and saltpeter plant. He knows the modern methods of making gunpowder, and he has noted the woefully inadequate methods for producing gunpowder being used in America today. In 1776, the Americans had started a revolution without a single gunpowder mill to supply the Continental Army. The Army used captured stores until gunpowder mills could be built. Yet as America has grown, the old powder mills have not kept up with demand. DuPont believes with modern equipment, the family can quickly establish themselves in the U.S. market and make out like bandits. Last year, they presented their proposal to President Jefferson so they could build the powder mill this year. Business was soon booming, so to speak. By the mid-century, DuPont will be supplying half the gunpowder the military uses. By the 20th century, DuPont will be producing nylon, plastics, and chemicals worldwide. And that makes me think of the movie The Graduate, and the comment on plastics. And we had a discussion about that a long time ago, but I'll let it go. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrug. The DuPont family came to America to escape the French Revolution. All they arrived with a considerable amount of money. They were using it fast in startup costs. They also brought along a special breed of Spanish sheep called Merino sheep. Unfortunately, only one ram survived the trip. They called him Don Pedro. They bred him with over 60 ewes that year, but most American farmers did not realize what they had. A sheep like Don Pedro would produce a soft wool perfect for use in clothing. A single sheep might sell for $1,000 at the time, which was an enormous amount of money. But American farmers thought that $65 for Don Pedro was as high as they would go. However, once the quality of the wool was recognized, everybody wanted a merino sheep. The farmers went crazy. In fact, 85% of the sheep in Delaware soon carried Don Pedro's DNA. Uh, DuPont moved American sheep, improved American sheep brooding. I'm not sure that was their intent. After all, the DuPonts were not shepherds, so I don't think they realized what they had any more than the local farmers did, at least for a while. Uh, my take on this is nothing to do with history, no lessons, no nothing, just an interesting thought. These things are all over Texas. Merino sheep and uh, Rambolita or Ramboleta or something like that is uh, like a derivative of the, the Merino sheep, and uh, they live in the wild. They're feral. This is not a great place to raise sheep, especially a hair sheep uh, or a, a sheep that really should be sheared like a merino. But somehow these things do manage to survive out in the wild. They pro and they do well in the in the deserts of Texas. You'd think they'd be really hot, but I guess maybe that wool provides a reverse type of insulation. And the other thing I would guess is because it's so dry there, they don't get a lot of things like fly strike and things like that to happen to unsheared sheep in moister climates. 
but they're actually a pretty decent meat yield. Uh, a ram will weigh 175 to 250 pounds, these wild sheep that run all over the place down here. And, in fact, there's a tremendous number of sheep that run feral and wild throughout the state of Texas. It's not the most sporting hunting. They're not the most bright creatures. It's nothing like hunting bighorn sheep or something like that in, in the mountains where uh, they you know, have hawkeye and they, they, they really look out for you and things like that. Um, but, I mean, they are not tame. They are wild animals, and uh, they are an additional thing that we're able to hunt in Texas and other parts of the country. Uh, unfortunately, they're also locked on to preserves and fenced operations in other places where they are like shooting an animal in a barnyard. But where they're actually feral, they're an interesting little thing to know about. Uh, with that, I want to kind of mention the three uh, things in other news. We have Napoleon becomes first consul for life. It is by popular vote after negotiating peace with the UK. He's a popular guy for now. Chemical reactions are rearranging atoms. John Dalton proposes a theory on how the chemical reactions occur. Yeah, he's got it. And Beethoven presents his Moonlight Sonata. Everyone's heard the first movement. Elements of the third movement might also be familiar. Now, I know this is the survival podcast, but as we get ready to go into today's show, I thought I would play for you maybe the first minute of Moonlight Sonata from Beethoven. Because, well, I think it'll put you in a relaxed state in today's show. After yesterday's talk about the doom and gloom of the economy, it's a nice relaxing show and planning your future and things you can actually do. And hell, I just want to play Beethoven on the Survival Podcast. Why wouldn't I want to do that? So hold on, here's the first uh, minute of the Moonlight Sonata, and we'll come back and get into today's show. All right, with that, uh, before we get into today's subject, I do want to let you know about the poll for next month. I already have it posted. I didn't slack or pike this time around and, and only give you a couple weeks to vote. You've got almost the whole month of June to vote for July's Tuesday shows. Uh, two of the um, subjects barely lost, so I brought them back for voting this time. Uh, so in July, you can vote on building resilient children in a world of wusses and how to get started with Bitcoin, setting up accounts, sending, receiving, etc. These both lost by fractions of the percentage from being in the top four. I also have for you gearing up on a budget as a new fisherman. So if you want to get into fishing and you want to do it right, but you won't, don't want to break the bank, I'm going to have a show on that possibly. 15 cool items for the prepper kitchen and how to use them. I have... Anarchy, it isn't what you think it is. I have getting ready for fall gardening, and that might shock you in July, but guys, if you want to have a fall garden, you're going to be starting your own plants in a shady environment, nice and cool area, and you'll be putting them out to get a yield in the fall from a second crop. Uh, you need to be starting them, many of you, in July to have enough time to get a crop. 
Uh, I also have 10 mead recipes from 2016 so far, going along with my meads of the week, which I haven't been doing videos for, but I am making mead, and I promise you there will be 52 batches of mead made this year. I'm actually ahead of the game right now. And I have power tools for the homestead. Now, I've done something different. I decided it would be fun to uh, keep people engaged through the whole election process, unlike voting for your Congress count where you get to vote once. This is what we have been doing so far. I give you eight if there's uh, four. I give you ten if there's five, depending on how many Tuesdays are in a month. And then you vote for your favorite four, and then half of them win. And what I decided to do this time to make it a little bit more interesting and see what would happen, you can vote for five. Now, only four will win, but you get five votes. Here's the really interesting thing. You can change your vote. You can decide, I didn't really want to vote for that, and you can change your vote. You can change it as many times as you want. Now, you still only get five votes. So when you change your vote, you have to deselect one to select another, but you can change your vote, and you can change it right up to the last day. What that does, let's say you voted for something that got like 3% of the vote, and you know it's not going to win. And you look at the ones that are going to win, and you decide, I'd rather have one of these other ones win that are really close. You can change it to that. So we could have wild swings in this election right up till the end. This should be fun, more fun than the Ask Clown Circus of 2016. Post went out about it today. There is a link in today's show notes as well, so you can go vote. Remember, you have to vote at the forum. And uh, remember also, when you vote at the forum, if you comment in that poll... What you want to see in the August show, that's where I get a lot of my ideas for August. And indeed, this time, I think three of these were suggestions from the prior poll for new topics. So you really are in control of the show. So with that, let's get into things here, guys. Um, I am doing this show today, even though it came in second place instead of doing it first. Again, because the, 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 the five years of flux, four years of flux, I think, is going to have a lot of research documentation to go along with it that I need some more time to do. Um, but also because last night, uh, Dorothy and I were just sitting around. There wasn't crap to watch. So we pulled up this video that I did with Josiah Wallingford when he was here as my intern. That was at the, the, basically the end of our first year on the homestead, which really kind of coincides with this. Um, and the, the property was strikingly different. Everything was brown. Everything was desolate. There were very few trees planted. Um, it was a hard winter that year, too, so that made it even worse. But if you look at that video, and you have seen any of the videos I've put out, like Duck Chronicles or anything like that recently, the difference in this property over those you know, the two years from then till now is unbelievable. And we didn't get here by accident. We didn't do any of this by accident. But we did make mistakes along the way. And what really hit me last night watching that video is how many things that were in that video that we did that we went, yeah, that was a mistake and changed. How many places we started where even though it worked out, we really shouldn't have started there. And how many ideas and thoughts we had that we either haven't gotten to yet because they're not that important or we just decided, yeah, we're not going to do that because that would be a mistake. And I figure if I can do that, then everybody can do that, right? I mean, I, just, I have my head in this every day, constantly, and yet I still find myself going, that was a dumb idea, I really shouldn't do that. And I actually look back at some of the things I thought I was going to do, and went, man, I'm glad I didn't do that, I was dumb. But just this had me thinking today, and I walked the property. And the other thing it had me thinking is, last night I told my wife, I said, you know, honey, we need to watch this about once every three or four months. Because I get to where I'm kicking myself, not getting enough done, things are still not where I want them to be. And I need to always remember what this what this started out like. 
And, and I, I tell you, maybe go watch that video. The video is over an hour long. It was professionally shot by Kelly. Um, uh, so it's, it's really, abs- uh, Kelly Heron, it's really a greatly uh, produced video. But you may not have the time. But if you just watch it for a couple of minutes and fast forward a couple of times and just get some views of what the property looked like and then pull up the Duck Chronicles and look at some, pro- you know, look at some videos from this year, it, it really is inspiring to see what can be done. But remember that you are doing your own thing. And your property might be easier, harder, in a different state. You have a different budget, different time commitment. So remember, this is not a competitive sport when it comes to homesteading. It's important that we get things done for ourselves. And that's kind of what I want to start out with, though. Um, I think the most important things that you can kind of put in your head for this, to, to, to think about what you need to be doing, are observation, interaction, on-the-fly learning, adaptation, opportunity recognition. Those are really important. So we, we observe the property and we interact with it. That's a permaculture principle. And that allows us to get a better feel for what we really should and should not be doing. And as we do that, we, we have the opportunity to learn on the fly and adapt on the fly. So on-the-fly learning and adaptation are important. And then in all of that, we see opportunities. Oh, this could work here and that could work there. And it's a good idea to write that stuff down because you can't do it all at once, and we'll get more into that in a bit. But if you kind of go at it with that mentality, a lot of this will make sense. Moving from there, I really want to say that the biggest reason for mistakes is a noble idea. The urge to get shit done fast. I mean, when I got to this property, I had been working my property in Arkansas. It was actually bigger. It was five acres. But I had this little piece of it that was really manageable. It wasn't much larger than my urban yard. I just had the freedom to do whatever I want, and I had woods and stuff like that. But, I mean, it really wasn't like I couldn't put in 150 trees, and here I could put in a 1,000 trees eventually. It's awesome, right? So, And I had, had learned all of these things about swales, and I had learned all of these things about contour gardens and culture, and uh, I had learned all these things about animals. I basically... You know, we go three years ago, so I was five years into the survival podcast. So add to that growing up, uh, basically on a homestead in Pennsylvania, uh, and then five years of studying this stuff and, and being able to work with little pieces and parts of it and then having a place where it's like, now you can do whatever you want, and you just go apeshit because you're excited. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do this. And you know with things going on all over the place. And what you end up when you do that, It will eventually work itself out, most likely, as long as you don't burn yourself out or burn out your budget. But you end up with a lot of things half done, and then even the things that are done are not connected in a system. And and the good of that is, okay, you can start to figure out, well, what kind of system is going to be here, but there's a much better way to go about it. So I think that one of the biggest things that we need to do as homesteaders, when we finally get the property that we can homestead, and I don't care if it's a quarter acre in the city or a, a, a two-tenths of an acre or a tenth of an acre in the city that we're going to do like the urban you know, homestead thing in, or it's, again, my mid-sized property like I have an acre, two, three acres like I have, uh, or a big property, 40 acres, 80 acres, whatever it is. You can get yourself into trouble on any property. But I really think once you go past about an acre and a half and get into two to three to five acres, the propensity to do that becomes even higher. 
because there's so much space, it's really easy to go, oh, look, I could put something right over there in the corner, and the corner is the furthest possible place from where you spend most of your time on the property, and maybe it's something that should be managed more like a zone one. should be tended to daily, or at least weekly kind of zone two stuff, and then you put it out somewhere that it doesn't really belong. Because, oh, there's nothing in the way there, so I could do it now. Versus, well, where something like that should really go is over here, but that's going to take work to get it there. So please try to hold yourself back. I think where we need to start is with our infrastructure. And on that, I mean water, access, structures, containment, and mobile housing. So I thought about just kind of lumping mobile housing into structures because there are structures, but not really. I see a structure as a thing. You build it, it exists where it is, okay? Where a mobile piece of housing is like a, a chicken tractor or a rabbit tractor. It moves around. So a rabbit hutch would be a structure. A rabbit tractor would be mobile housing, okay? And... When I, when I talk about water, when we get into, you know, broad acre, large scale permaculture type things, homesteading, regen ag, when we say water, a lot of times we're talking about surface water, swales and hydrological management of water and things like that. And if you're managing a larger property and you're getting into that level of, of geoengineering, yeah, okay, absolutely. If we're evaluating a property, are we going to buy it or not? And it's a larger property and we're thinking about, you know, putting in ponds and swales and, and doing perk tests, and what is the contour lay of the land, we can evaluate that. But what I'm really talking about, and you may solve this problem with surface water, but in the initial first year, unless you have a really big budget, you really know what you're doing, and you have a large property, it may be putting pipe in the ground is what we're talking about. I'm talking about water for irrigation. I'm talking about plumbing. I'm talking about providing water to your animals. Uh, I'm talking about just getting water to places. And if I could go back and change one of the many things that I've, I've done on this property, the first thing I would have done was determine where all my water routes need to be from my main plumbing lines, and I would have put them in. And once I had that infrastructure up, every time I built a small food forest, a garden, whatever, there would have been a place to tie in and immediately do irrigation and If I really had the hindsight, there would have been wire going everywhere, and I would have automated everything, or at least most things right away. Though that could have cost a lot of money, and it would be fine to at least have the mainframe of the irrigation and think about putting in a second set of pipes that can be used as feedback and irrigation lines and stuff like that while you have the ditch open, and to really sit down and lay that out. And you know, I'm at a point now where there's very few parts of the property that there's not water available. Um, not all four corners, uh, but, well, really all four corners. The, 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 uh, the furthest place away water is from the corner is about 25 feet, uh, from one corner. And otherwise, it's pretty much to the corners of all the property. So we have water all over the three acre property now. We still have some areas I'd like to put some in, but it has made things so much easier. Servicing the ducks, um, providing water, uh, irrigation of crops. And it sucks to put in things and then lose them because of lack of irrigation. Oh, I won't need irrigation. I'll put a swale in. Okay, great. Well, it was a four-month drought the first year you had this in, and it's not going to live. Uh, stuff like that happens all the time. So water. Access. The biggest thing with access is not designing it out. Um, I've seen people put in a swale right to the edge of a property line. Don't do that. 
unless you're designing a drive across or something with you know one of your sills with a culvert or something like that, don't do that. Um, you need to be designing access in for wheelbarrows, lawnmowers, everything. There's places where we don't have quite the access I want, but I knew I was making the concession because we have irrigation uh, where we can't really mow as well as we want. We can still get through. And it's because of the type of irrigation I have to do here, which I won't get into. But really think about your access. Structures. Um, structures that you have is where to start out. I mean, I know everybody wants to build stuff, and that's great. But you really need to think about all the structures you have and what, what functionality could they provide for you. And try to determine all the things that you what you already have can do for you before you decide you need something else. We have a great big outbuilding. It's a 12 by 16 foot outbuilding. It would make a great storage facility. But it was you know, kind of out in our west pasture and kind of remote, and it makes a much better poultry house than it does a storage facility. And there wasn't no reason to build a poultry house when that was there and was easily adaptable to using as a poultry house. Containment. I think containment is one of the most important things that you can make sure you have on your property as, as quickly as possible. Containment for your animals and containment for humans as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have a bunch of free-range hippies in your backyard with a, orders to do a certain job and a giant fence they can't get out of that's electrified so the hippies can't get away. That's not what I mean by containment or control for humans. What I actually mean is there's probably going to be people on your property other than yourself, and they're going to walk places and do things, and that's going to cause them to, like, break stuff. And you yourself will likely end up, at times, trampling a seedling or something like that if you don't think about not just, you know, large-scale containment-type things, but sometimes simple things like making sure you stake a tree that really doesn't need to be staked, just because the stake will be visible and you'll be less likely to step on the, the small tree. Uh, so containment is also thinking about, well, if I create a pathway through this area, then when a person comes through this area, they'll take the path. And often even dogs will, you know, they're still going to go places and do things and pee and poo on stuff and, and what have you, and sometimes stuff you don't want them to do, but their main walkway, dogs will generally follow a pathway if it's available to them. And if we can condition them to follow a pathway, eventually if we do put a gate somewhere, if that pathway leads to a gate and we put in a dog gate, the dog is accustomed to that pathway and he's ear trained through the gate. So it's not just about containing chickens or cattle or goats or whatever, but containment. And, and I really suggest before you, you, you try the whole free-ranging thing, you know, I'm going to let animals free-range, that you develop a basic paddock containment on a piece of property. Um, even if you're going to do things with, like, Electronet, well, Electronet combined with hard structure fencing uh, can be very helpful as well. So if you think about your water, your access, your structures, and your containment, you go a long way. And then many of you are going to want to get into livestock, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but I really recommend your first year that you consider going small in size, small in number, and you either use a structure to house it that's permanent and they don't really get to go everywhere, or you use mobile housing, a chicken tractor, a quail tractor, a rabbit tractor, you name it, for your first year, at least for your first foray. And I'll, I'll hold there. But if you get those things nailed down, 
and you put most of your effort, your money, and your time in your first year into those things versus trying to plant 300 trees, I know it sucks because you want to get the trees in the ground because the best time to plant a tree is today, and the, or the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, and the next best time is now. And that, that is true, but if you put a tree in that dies, it, it becomes untrue very, very quickly. Or if you put a tree in a place, and then a, a month later you really think, like, wow, that sucks, well, maybe you can dig that tree up. But if it takes you a year to figure that out, that tree's got a lot of roots down. And even if you can dig it up and relocate it, it probably won't do any better than if you had just planted it a year later. So knowing where, when, and how you're going to plant is important. And, and all of that... If we, if we keep that mindset, hold back the get shit done fast attitude to get shit done in a meaningful way in the first year, we'll do a lot better. For your food production, I, I, re, I this is what everybody wants to do. I hear from people every single day. We're looking for property so we can grow and produce our own food. We want to grow food, vegetables. We want to grow fruit. We want to grow nuts. We want to grow livestock. We want eggs. We want meat. We want, we want, we want, we want. Me too. Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. But in your first year, now I, I want to caveat this right now. If you've done all this before and you're going to a new place and you're just making modifications to things you've already done and you absolutely know what you're doing raising cattle and you've moved on to 40 acres and if you don't put cattle on it, you're going to have to mow it and there's fencing all around the perimeter and you can, you can manage your cattle and you want to put cattle on it, you go ahead and do that. All right. I'm not saying not to do things you already know how to do. I'm talking about people in general, most of this audience, when they move on to a homestead, it might be their first time or first in a long time on a homestead. They've been waiting to do it. They're excited. And most of you guys that I hear from are buying smaller properties. Or if you're buying larger properties, it's all wooded and you're cleaning a small area or... There's a small cleared area, and the rest of the big properties wooded, and you want to focus on that small area, and you should. So this is kind of where I'm coming from with this today. I think for your food production, start small and start intensive. Put in an annual garden in a place where you want it to be forever, but accept the fact that you can move it if you have to. But put it close to your house. Uh, put it close to your places you're going to be every day. Make it a zone one garden. I, I really recommend highly you consider doing it either with raised beds, and those can be uh, walled or unwalled, or wicking beds. And I'm really loving my wicking beds. I'm getting great production out of them. I'm doing very little work. The reason I like le the, the approach of doing some raised beds and bringing in fill, you know, good quality compost, topsoil, etc., some lava sand, some green sand, getting you get a great start. You get, I mean, just good soil. You get it weed-free, and you have a chance to keep it that way. You can put down weed blocker on the bottom of it. You can put weed blocker on the top and mulch over it. Uh, even if you have to do some weeding, it's very, very minimal. And when you construct a raised bed, it's really easy to put some PVC pipe in it or some drip line in it or whatever and immediately irrigate it. So you're not out there with a garden hose every day, which I did for years. It's much easier to just have irrigation put in. And... Or do a wicking bed, and again, you're putting fill in, so you're 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 dirt, you're uh, weed free, you're grass free, you're good to go right off the bat. And grow things that are easy to grow. Grow peppers and tomatoes and zucchini squash and butternut squash and things like that. I think butternut squash is a fantastic crop because in your first year, you go into fall, 
you're trying to figure out what to do with everything. How do I store this? How do I dehydrate that with a butternut squash? You cut it off the vine. Uh, you, you set it wherever you want it, and it's good for six months at room temperature. If you have a, a basement, you're good to go. I mean, you're really good to go. But, I mean, you can basically store them in a cool, dry space on the shelf for months at a time. So that's one less thing you have to do, but yet it's a good long-term yield, and a few vines produce a lot of butternut squash, and it's a good financial yield. Organic butternut squash is $3 a pound, and an average butternut will weigh three to four pounds. I mean, you're, you're talking meat prices. If, if you, if you, I mean, again, you can buy cheaply grown, chemicalized butternut squash, but organic butternut squash is, is $2.99 a pound at the store. I see it there all the time. So that's, that's like, like say, the example. Lettuces, uh, spinaches, greens, sweet potato. Sweet potato, I think, especially in the South, staple crop. Way better than, than, you know, regular potatoes. Way more reliable, and it gives you something that they never will. Greens. Last night, I cooked for Dorothy. And I just assessed, what do I have available? Here's what I had available. I ate pasta, yes. I jack ate pasta. I had some angel hair pasta. I had some really nice uh, chicken thighs. Uh, they were whole thighs with skin and bone. I had... Um, Just cut, I cut for my buddy David, I cut uh, six pieces off of really nice uh, slips off of my purple Japanese sweet potatoes that are doing great in my raised bed garden. And when you do that, you want to remove both of the leaves. So I cut really long ones, remove most of the leaves, put them in a jar for him. Next time he comes over, he can pick them up. Hey, David, how you doing, bro? Anyway, um, I have this big pile of leaves. So I brought it in the house, cleaned them up, put them through the salad spinner, and set them there and looked at them. Said that that's interesting, and then said, you know what would go with that? Some basil. So I went out to pick some basil out of the wicking beds, cut that, and then I looked over at the cherry tomato plant. It had about 20 cherry tomatoes on it. Picked those off, brought that all in, quartered the tomatoes, cut up, not really fine, but just kind of cut up the basil and the sweet sweet potato leaves, and then I took the chicken, pulled the skin off, threw it in a pot of water. I cut the meat off the bone, threw the bones in the pot of water, and cleaned the thighs up. Little pieces of gristle and fat, cut it all off, threw it in the water. Added some salt, added some Italian seasoning, some thyme and rosemary, and some other garlic and some other good stuff. Put it on the boil, made my own chicken broth. Cut up the rest of the, the, the chicken thigh meat into cubes, and then coated it with, gar just coated it with seasonings. Took a, a skillet, put a mix of... Uh, Garlic-infused olive oil and lard so I could increase the smoke point. Fried that chicken, took it out, deglazed the pan, boiled up the pasta, drained the pasta, heated, you know, took all the stuff out of the uh, chicken stock, gave that to the dogs, and then uh, heated the stock back up so it's nice and hot, put the basil and uh, sweet potato leaves in the pot, ladled a couple ladles of the chicken stock over it, wilted it, put the noodles on it, And tossed it, so that we had the, the greens and the noodles tossed together, threw the chicken in there, residual heat warmed the chicken back up, then right at the end, take the tomatoes, no peeling, no must, no fuss, threw the cherry tomatoes in there, mix that up. If you do them at the beginning and they cook too much, the skins get the way tomato skins get when you cook them too much, but instead they just kind of warm through and they're bright, and, and we had that for dinner. Most of that came from the property, and it was that simple. And that's because we're growing intensive. And that, that gave us flexibility to do that. I went out there today. 
There's a zucchini squash that will probably be ready by tomorrow. Uh, this is just in the wicking beds. There's a couple cucumbers. We can do cucumber salsa. Just little stuff like that. You start to get stuff. right? And that's so important because it keeps you motivated. And, and I didn't really start with that. I threw some broccoli and stuff in, in the, the, the hugel beds that were going to get success into uh, to perennial production. But I didn't really get intensive with the gardening because I'd, like, I'd done enough gardening. I should have stuck with it. I'm good at it. I know what I'm doing. And uh, it would have given us a lot more production than we had in the first year. So we've, we've backed up and done that. Don't be afraid to back up and do things. Um, I also think for livestock, you're better off going into rack-housed livestock or coop-housed livestock or something like that. You don't need it, it. Okay, again, a caveat. If you're going to do this for profit, I hope you have a business plan, you've run the numbers, And whatever you need to do to make a profit, you got to do. Okay, so I'm talking about for the homesteader for their own production. If you're going to do chickens, and you have a family of four, and you have six chickens, you will probably produce enough eggs for yourself once you get into main, mainstream production. Six chickens, you can have a relatively small chicken house and a run. And I don't care what the hell Paul Wheaton says. There's nothing wrong with it. You just keep adding organic matter to your run. You feed them all your chicken scraps. You put a little composting uh, pit in with your run. You you do deep litter in your coop. You collect your eggs every day. You don't let your chickens run all over the place and screw everything up. You're not running around with an electro net while you're figuring shit out. You're not. You just you just do that. Or you put in basically a rabbit hutch. And you get a dough and two bucks, and you learn to do that. Or you put in some racks, and you put in you know a dozen quail, two dozen quail, and now you have meat and eggs. You do one of those if you're going to go that route. Or you put in a couple garden ponds. You can do about a stock tanks like I did. There's videos you can look at to see how I did that. And grow just tilapia. Pick one, maybe two in your first year, and keep it where you don't have to worry about the containment we talked about. Use that first year to get the containment in, determine what you really like and don't like about different livestock, and then once you have the containment and management in, then you can bring the livestock in. Again, if you've got a perfect setup for cattle, fine, or goats, fine, or whatever, fine. But assuming you're starting from your first year and you need to figure this stuff out, stick to something that's contained or go with tractored livestock. Again, you could get you know four to six chickens, a tractor that's easy. Build a tractor before you get your chick chickens. Coop on top of it so you don't give up any floor space. A couple nesting boxes. Throw six chickens in it. They can't get out. As soon as they go out of the brooder, straight into the chicken tractor, they don't know what they're missing. People worry about chickens in a chicken tractor. If you have a chicken that's been free-range for a while, and then you put it in a chicken tractor, they usually don't do very well. They really don't. Because all they want is out. If they've never been out, they don't know. They're conditioned to that, and they do just fine. But, you know, quail in a rack system, quail in a tractor, rabbits in hutches, rabbits in a tractor, chicken in a, uh, a coop and run, you know, what have you. And if you like the idea of a double run, so you have one, like the Victory Gardens, we have a chicken coop, we have two runs. And they're going to take care of that run this year. And then next year we're going to run them in the other run and we're going to garden that run. That's a beautiful system. It's old as shit. Uh, it's not really in vogue like it used to be, but it's still a good system. There's nothing wrong with it. And as long as you know you can build the second run, in your first year you spend the coop in the run. They need to use that thing for a season anyway. 
But stay small. I'm talking if you're doing quail, two dozen or less. If you're doing rabbits, a trio. If you're doing chickens, a half a dozen. And, and you know, buy what you know what you're buying. Don't go down the feed store and buy like 20 straight run chickens because you could get 18 roosters. You really can. You know, if you're going to do chickens for eggs, then then do, you know, your, your, your red sex links or something like that that are high ratio layers, you know, and get a couple extra ones and be willing to cull if you need to. If you're doing chickens in a tractor, um, unless it's a big tractor, I don't really recommend having a rooster with a couple, you know, four chickens because it'll just overdo it. If you have a half a dozen to one rooster and a fairly nice sized tractor, um, that can work because actually the rooster may be a little easier on his girls because he feels like he's got them. He doesn't have to worry about rounding them up. He doesn't have to fight other roosters, even the imaginary ones in his little rooster brain, and, and, and that can work. But for your first year, you don't need a rooster. You're not producing chickens yet. You can always get a rooster. You can always change what you're doing. Keep it small. Keep it simple. Um, next, some big things not to do. Please don't do one of the biggest things I've done consistently and I still end up doing. Don't buy plants and trees and things like that without knowing where and when they will be planted. Because what happens is you end up with these trees and you just really don't have a good place for them to go. And you know if I put them out there in the ground, they're going to die because I don't have my, you know, my infrastructure done yet. So you keep them in a pot and then you have to maintain them and take care of them. They don't really grow that much in a season. It would just been easier to let somebody else do that and get them when you're ready for them. Now, there's opportunity buys that come up. I mean, one of the reasons I have some still some trees this year that are, are not in the ground yet is simply because I have a deal with Bob Wells and I get a certain amount of trees every year. Um, I'm going to take those. So uh, I've got a few that haven't gone in the ground yet, and it's getting a little bit late to put them in the ground, and I'm not really sure where they're going to go. And, you know, next year I may actually sell off a lot of the stuff that I get and use that as a different opportunity because we're beginning to reach capacity in certain areas and other areas aren't quite ready yet. But what I found myself doing is, oh, wow, I can get 10 of these for the price of five, basically, so I'm going to buy all 10. Now, what the hell do I do with them? Well, one thing you can do is sell them off. That's fine, but make sure you can. But buying a lot of stuff and not having a place for it to go, it's a common mistake, and you end up with a lot of losses. And the losses of a plan is a loss of money. Don't add livestock before you have the means to control them. Chickens are great animals. I am Because I'm pro-duck, people think I'm anti-chicken. I'm not anti-chicken. I just don't think chickens work really well on my property. And they don't. They could, but I would have to do things that I would prefer not to have to do, therefore I use ducks. Chickens are great, but if you let them go free, they will flat out tear everything apart. That's what they do. Their inherent characteristic is they are scratchers. And that means if you have a beautiful garden bed, it is like beautiful music to them. Ah, chicken, come to me. So you either have to have a way to contain the chicken or the way to keep the chicken out of the area you don't want it if that chicken is going to be outside of the containment area for the chicken. So really don't add livestock before you have means to control them. And make sure the means to control them are effective. Uh, I've seen people, uh, one, of, one of my good friends lost a lot of plants. Now, he actually had a means to control them, but he left his homestead under the care of somebody else. 
that somebody else left the gate open, and then goats went in and ate a whole bunch of plant stock, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of plant stock that was now not available for propagation in the next season. That's just one example of what can happen. So do not add livestock before you have a means to control them. And do not put in isolated structures, features, gardens that are not connected to the rest of the system. It's tempting to do because there's space over there, like I said earlier. And uh, an example of that, if you watch the video I mentioned today that will be in the show notes, my uh, the review after the first year, you'll see this hugel bed that, that Joe and I show that we're quite proud that we put in. It's not there anymore. It was a bad place. It was like the idea to connect it down the whole fence line was sound. The irrigation wasn't in yet. It would have made putting that irrigation in difficult. Some of the things that was planned about having this line of hugels going down the fence Uh, are still in place, but we determined a much lower input way to do it, and it was just sitting out there isolated, and, and it wasn't connected to anything, so it didn't get taken care of, and even though Hoogles give you the ability to do less irrigation and things like that, they still have that first year, uh, and, and in this climate, really, in this situation, we're in maybe two of needing the maintenance before all of that magic starts to happen, um, and it just didn't work, and I ended up deciding, you know what, I could just use all that dirt for other applications, pulled the wood out of the ground, stacked it up, and it wasn't even beginning to decay, and uh, filled back the trench that we had dug and took the rest of the dirt and did other things with it. And and the reason that was a bad idea it was it was disconnected. It was disconnected from the rest of the system. It was isolated. I'm going to put in a greenhouse, and there's a big flat spot way in the back of the property. Great, that means you're going to not want to go there in winter when it's cold when you most need to be there to use it. So you have to think about the, the interconnection of things, a flow to what you're doing. And isolated structures, features, gardens, etc., break that flow. They don't get maintained. And it's much easier to build tight in and expand out as your flow grows than to start out with the disjointed nature. And, and that's something you've got to constantly be on the look for. Uh, you really got to keep yourself from doing it because... Every time you want to do something that's like a, a, a significant project, you're going to want a clean blank slate to start with, a nice flat spot with openings and no trees in the way and other pain-in-the-ass buildings and things like that. So those are usually corners, and corners are isolated by their very nature. And they also have a tendency, if you put something somewhere in a corner sometimes, to start designing out that access we talked about. So always look at these things in totality. And I guess something else I should say is think really hard before you cut a hole in a wall of an existing structure uh, to attach something to it or something like that. Be sure of what you're doing when you start altering actual good quality buildings. I've seen people make some pretty big mistakes with you know attached greenhouses and the greenhouse doesn't work and things like that. Okay? Um, some things to do, some of the most important things to do. And some of them cost no money and are really, really important. Number one thing I think you can do is walk your property daily, take it all in. Try to walk your whole property. And if you have like a three-acre property, you can do that. If you don't have the ability to walk your whole property, pick the piece you're going to work, walk it every day. Look at everything. Notice that there's this particular grass starts to die and turn brown. And it summer kills at a certain point in time. And, and notice what's replacing it, including is nothing replacing it. So is this an area where you have a, a winter grass, a fall and winter grass, grows in the spring, dies back, and there's really not anything to replace it? Just, you know, and I think you should be keeping a journal or notes or something 
about this with dates and, and the observations that you have. Um, and, and just try to see everything that's going on. Pay attention to birds, wildlife, wind directions, times of year when you have heavy winds and where they're coming from, times of year when you have no wind, uh, times of the year when you have a lot of rain. If you have a, you know, if you have a rain event, go note wherever there's standing water after the rain event. And then note how long it takes for that standing water to go away. And does that standing water create disturbances? Like, I have places on the property still where after a rain event, even if there was vegetation, it's kind of like dead. The, the water kills it, especially when we have big flooding like we've had this year. And now I have this mud patch that turns into hard pack. Well, obviously, we have to do something about that. So what we have to do here, and we still, we're still you know, catching up. Uh, we'll be working for a long time. Uh, but bring in fill to remove that low spot unless it can be used as a low spot somehow and then avoid that continuous disturbance because what you have when you kill something with water you end up with this mud but when it dries and there's no vegetation there now it becomes hard and compacted and it becomes harder for something to grow there these are observations you need to be making and I know you think well I'll remember it but you won't observe your neighboring property too Especially as you begin to do work, if you start to see that, well, this is greening up and just across the fence that's the same as brown, that's a good indication you're going in the right direction. But if the neighbor's property looks great and yours looks like hell and you're supposed to know what you're doing and that guy's doing nothing, then you're doing something wrong. So observing neighbor's properties is a good idea. Seek out cheap and free sources of materials a lot in your first year. You know, where can you get leaves? Where can you get wood chips? Where can you get scrap lumber? Where can you get fill in the blank? But... Use caution. Uh, I've seen people also, like, you know, find out, oh, I can get all the horse manure I want from this guy. He'll just bring it to me. And, you know, a, a few weeks later, they've got this giant mountain of horse shit, and they really don't have time or method to, to compost it all. Or I can get all of this free wood, and that's the end of this giant wood pile, but no idea what they're really going to do with it. So find the sources, but use caution how much you take on at once. Have a place for it. Know what you're going to do with it. Know how you're going to handle it. You know, if you have a 40-acre pasture and a tractor and you can get all the manure you want, well, you can just spread it out. That's easy. Or you can, if you have a front-end loader and you can get a lot of material to compost, you can turn your compost pile with a front-end loader. That's fine. But turning a couple yards of compost by hand, it's tough. All right? So you got to start thinking about how, we're, how you're going to deal with whatever materials you're going to get, but seek them out. I really think you need to develop a composting solution, at least for your intensive gardening. And I guess the two that I would recommend you look at most is one is a worm composting bin. And uh, I'm still, you know, honestly trying to figure out how I'm going to do that here because every time I build a worm bin here, and I've never gotten really Nazi on the ants yet, and I, I probably need to, but I just have had other things to do. But every, every worm bin I've ever built has been immediately invaded by fire ants. This is like fire ant hellhole here. Uh, and we're constantly murdering them with murder juice. Murder juice is also known as antifuego. It works really good, but they still just keep coming back. Uh, the, the murder juice basically allows you to eliminate mounds so you're not constantly being stung. But it doesn't make them go away. It just doesn't. So 
a worm bin's one, and another opportunity is to use my garbage can, three garbage can composting system. If you're an MSB member, there's a video on exactly how to do it in the MSB, but I'll give you the basics here. And this works really good for those of you that are going to have things like rack-based quail systems where a couple times a week you're pulling out that pan that's full of you know aspen shavings or wood chips or whatever and quail poop. It'll work great with that. So all you do, basically, is you get three of the tough Rubbermaid garbage cans. These sell for, like, I don't know, I think they're less than 20 bucks a piece at Home Depot, the larger ones. And then you need a piece of four-inch, the thin wall, PVC perforated pipe for, like, French drains. has holes on one side. And you cut one stick of that will make it for your three garbage cans. And you, you cut it to length so it's just a little bit lower than when you put the lid on the garbage can. The lid on the garbage can won't hit it. And then you take a drill, and you drill holes, uh, especially like a uh, what am I going to say? A hole saw. It's about the same size as the holes that are already in the pipe. And four or five sides, you you, you make the perforated pipe have like four lines of perforated holes, not just the one it comes with. Okay. And then you take a piece of like half inch or three quarter inch PVC, and you make it long enough that it can go through the. You make a hole in the bottom of the. Uh, garbage can, and it can go all the way and, and kind of go through one of those holes into that center column, if that makes sense, and you perforate it with smaller holes, and on the bottom of the garbage can, you drill holes all the way around about a couple inches apart, and at the top of the garbage can, you drill holes all the way around, and then you drill holes through the bottom of the garbage can, okay, I'm sorry, so you drill them in the bottom of the garbage can where it touches the earth, You drill some around the bottom of, of the garbage can itself at the bottom, about an inch up from the bottom. Again, go look at the video. And then around the top, right around the lip, and your lid can go right on there. And you take your little piece of pipe and you stick it through one of the holes in the bottom into the one, and you start stacking materials for composting around there. Once you get a little bit in there, the, the center pipe will stand up, and you just keep adding to it. You make three of these. When you fill the first one, you just start filling the second one. By the time you fill the second one, the first one will have collapsed to about half its volume. You need one four-inch pipe end cap. You take your third one, you set it up, you put the end cap on it loosely, just so when you dump the, 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 the one that's collapsed in half into it, that it doesn't go in the pipe and fill the pipe up. You dump the half-full one in. Now it's empty. You put the lid on that one. You have the lids on these at all times. You keep them just hosed down a little bit to stay wet. And you start filling the empty one. By the time it's full, the second one is now half volume. The third one's ready to use as compost. You dump it out to wherever you want to keep your ready-to-go compost. You dump the second one over, and now that one's empty, and you start filling it. You just keep running that. Again, the video makes this all really, really clear. It's for free. Well, it's not for free. It's for all MSB members for free. One of the things that you get out of that. That works for scraps from the kitchen that works for anything if you're doing chickens and you, you're bringing litter out you have a compost bin you can even take the partially so the chickens do like 80% you throw it in there it works for just about anything and it works kind of like a worm bin in that if you're constantly adding new material it's not a problem there's enough time in the cycle for that new material to be incorporated all you really need to do is get some source of carbon leaves wood chips, straw that you have on hand when you get a whole bunch of chicken scraps, it's like wet material, a whole bunch of green, and when you've added a lot of that and you don't have a lot of carbon with it, just, just cover it with straw and leaves. 
and just keep doing that. Or if you end up with a lot of carbon you need to put in there, get your mower out uh, and, and cut some grass and add some grass clippings for a green with it. And if you do that, that system works beautifully. It, it works beautifully. And again, it's, it's available to all MSB members in the uh, download section of the MSB. And I think you need a composting solution your first year because as you're developing that intensive garden, you need that fertility. Um, get shit organized. That's the next thing. I mean, like, your your tool sheds, all that. And if you've been here, you know I suck. I, I, I really hope at some point, as I, I start hiring farmhands and stuff like that, I find somebody that's like an organization freak that can, that can get all my stuff organized for me and keep me from sabotaging myself. I'm not claiming that everything I recommend I'm good at. And this is my big thing. I work on something. I put the drill down. I don't put it away. Um, you know, we're about to go redo everything again, and hopefully we'll come up with systems that hold it in more organizational space. But, you know, my old buddy Hal Dodd that, that unfortunately passed away a few years ago, he was beautiful at this. He would sit, he would take a picture of his shed, and when he was bored at work, he'd pull up the picture and think, well, that could go over there and that would be better. If you can do that, it works out really, really good. Uh, but get stuff organized, get systems in place. Get places when you're done with the tool, where does it go back? Again, I suck at this, but I wish I didn't because I know how much more valuable it is when you do. Um, the next thing, and this is something else I've struggled with, but I've got a lot better at. Finish one thing before you begin the next. If you have a project, then that is your mission until it's complete. If you have two projects going simultaneously, neither one will probably ever get finished. If you have three, forget it. So once you start a project, the only thing that should pull you off that project when you have time to work is things like feeding animals, things that have to be done, routine work or emergencies. Some of them broke, and if you don't fix it, there's going to be a problem. So you're working on a chicken uh, tractor, but all of a sudden the dog breaks a piece of PVC pipe and water shooting up in the air. Okay, that you got to stop. You got to go fix it. And uh, you know that type of stuff happens to me all the time. And then I think this is really critical. Keep a record of things you have to do often or that, 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 you know, that constantly break and need to be fixed. Or maybe not break is the right word, but there's imperfections in the system that you haven't yet had time to fix. And things go wrong, and they're easy to correct, but you have to know how to correct them. Here's an example. In my two small garden ponds that are built out of uh, stock tanks, two 470-gallon stock tanks, I have a stand-up pipe. Water overflows that stand-up pipe, goes down, exits the bottom of the stand-up pipe, uh, and goes down to the lower pond and comes and refills it. At the same time, there's a pump that pumps water through another pipe that comes up and, and fills the top tank. And that is a recirculating system. Every once in a while, that stand-up pipe stops working. Something gets in there, it gets plugged up, and all that we need to do is you pull out the little filter pipe I have with, a, with an end cap on it. Pull the end cap off. I keep another little piece of pipe right next to it. And I put that end cap on that pipe. That pipe is, is solid. And there's a T that it plugs into and goes horizontal. And that lets the overflow. And the T is a backup. If the, if the little pipe that has the, the little holes in it to keep big stuff from going down in there fails, well, because it gets clogged up, not the main pipe, then the water eventually gets to the top of the T, and it's a secondary stand-up, overflow. So the water will come up higher, but it doesn't overflow. Since I run a very slow recirculator, and I'm out there every day, if it stops working, I see it, that the water level's too high. So I put that solid pipe in, I take a garden hose, put it in the top of the T, 
and I turn the water on and turn it up the pressure slowly, and it blows out the pipe. And then I take turn the guard hose off, I pull the hose out, I pull the little pipe off, I put the filtering one back in, and this might be hard to visualize, but just understand it's simple, but it sounds complex. And if you never did it before, and you were watching my property for me, you'd be like, what the hell do I do? Okay. So what I need to do is I need to do a little video that shows when this happens, here's how you fix it. So when I have a farm sitter, they can just look at a document and says, pond is overfilling, right? They can search it, click, see a little video, here's how you fix it. Or pictures and a write-up. And all the little, because here's what's going to happen. You won't have that quirky problem. Eventually, I'm going to replumb this, and that problem will pretty much go away. But when you're homesteading and you're building your own stuff, there will always be quirky little things that go wrong. That because you built it, as soon as it goes wrong, you go, oh, I know how to fix that. And you'll get into a routine of checking for that little problem until you can permanently correct it or just living with it. That's not that big a deal. This is something that goes wrong you know, once every four or five weeks. It's not critical. Nothing's going to die. Nothing's going to blow up. And here's how I fix it. The person that, you know, that babysits your farm for you or your homestead for you someday will not know how to do it. And you'll be in Florida fishing for uh, sharks on the beach. And your phone will go off and your wife will yell to you and you'll have a panicking person going, the pond's overflowing, what do I do? So developing basically a how-to manual for your homestead will enable you to one day be free of your homestead and know that it's in good hands with whoever you've trusted with it. Next up, I want to suggest that right from the beginning and on an ongoing, ba on, on an ongoing basis, you continuously perform an analysis. The most important analysis that you can perform as a homesteader. Is this analysis of your property? No. Is it an analysis of your existing systems and how they're working? No. Is this an analysis of your planned future systems and how they're going to work? No. This is an analysis of yourself. This is the thing that everybody pushes to the side that should be at the front of any system. A system means that you have an organizational structure and flow by design. That's what a system is. A system could be natural. A system can be completely artificial. And as a homesteader, what we want to do is, is get as close to the natural system as we can. But we're never going to be 100% natural. If we were a 100% natural system, okay, meaning natural in absence of a human, then what would happen is either the animals would eat everything and leave, or there wouldn't be enough animals to eat everything, and eventually it would exceed their capacity to eat, and trees would grow through the roof of your house to just kind of put it to the And we've all seen old homesteads with a tree growing through the roof of a house. It happens. I've seen buildings in Detroit and Chicago with a tree growing on the third floor of a four-story building through the roof, and the tree is growing on the third floor floor, not up from the, flo the below floors, It's and the roots eventually go down like some kind of like medieval looking thing and, and, and go down the side of the building to the actual ground. So that's a natural system. So you are the ultimate mediator and controller and, 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 and moderator of that system. You're the one that says, this is being grazed too much by the chickens, they need to leave. You're the one that says, the fish have gotten too big, some of them need to come out and be filleted. 
you're the one that says the grass has gotten too tall here, the animals won't graze it anymore, it needs to be cut or it needs to be knocked down in some way. You do all these things. And without you, the system goes from managed natural system along with a little bit of uh, artificial system hybrid to chaos. And then it goes from chaos to either destruction or natural restoration. Neither of which you really want because neither gives you what you're looking for from the system. So if you just say, for instance, I must have chickens. I'm a homesteader and homesteaders have chickens. And you haven't analyzed yourself. You might be selecting the wrong item for the homestead. So we have to analyze the property. Do chickens fit on the property? If so, how? But do chickens fit for me? Is this what I really want? I want eggs as quick as possible. Then you don't want chickens. You want quail. You can have eggs in six weeks or you can have eggs in 24 weeks. Which one do you want? And depending on what time of year it is, you might not be able to get chickens, but you might be able to get quail. I want eggs and meat. Then you probably don't want chickens because you either need to have meat and egg chickens because dual-purpose breeds don't really make very good meat. Maybe you want quail. I really want meat. Then maybe you want rabbits. right? So if you don't analyze yourself, you do something just because the book says to, just because Jack says to, just because the Internet says to, just because YouTube says to, just because Facebook says to, just because the magazine you got that month says to. You have to analyze yourself. Most basic question, and I don't think people ask it enough, what do you like to eat? You know, people get a seed catalog. Look at this cool purple kohlrabi. Have you ever eaten kohlrabi? I mean, I know you could grow a couple of them and see if they work out and then try it, but couldn't you just go out to like a Whole Foods or somewhere where they have a good produce selection, buy a piece of kohlrabi and cook it or use it however you think you want to use it and go, yeah, I like that, or yeah, you know what, I like that okay, but not so much that I really want to put the effort into growing it. I'd rather grow other things. I love quail. I think they're fantastic. I think they have a lot of similarities to the chicken. Um, but not 100%. And they're certainly a smaller bird. If you're going to get quail and you think you're going to use them for meat, then I'd go buy some quail. Go find a store that sells them. Buy some and try it. Same thing with rabbits. Go get a rabbit. Eat it. Make sure that this is a thing that you're going to want to eat. And you need to ask yourself, are you okay killing animals? If you're not... It's okay. Even if you're a great big giant dude that looks like you're a hell's angel, no one's going to pull your man card away from you because you don't want to kill a bunny rabbit. It's okay. Every time I kill one of my animals, I feel something. And I agree with Joel Salon. You should feel something. It's never my favorite day. It, it, it also goes really quick from I don't want to kill this animal to, boy, this is a lot of work. But I don't like killing them. And there's, there's here's some truth, too. The more personality an animal has, the harder it is to kill it. Um, I have certain ducks that I have no problem when it's their time putting them in a crate, taking them down and having them killed, but it would be very hard for me to kill them because that duck has a name. And if you're going to have a lot of animals, some of them are going to be individuals and they're going to have names. But you need to even ask yourself, are you okay? Take If you do have a place, like you, you do the research and decide, well, I'm going to do meat chickens. Um, and there's a place down the road for me that will do them for $4 a bird, and if you have that, you probably want to let them do it. it just, I'm just saying, your time's worth more than 4 bucks a bird. And to buy all the equipment to do it right in, in quantity, you could pay them to do it a lot of seasons before you'd ever pay your equipment off. I'm just saying. But for some people, that's going to be hard. Or are you going to be okay eating it when you think about it? You might want to ease into this with a, a couple animals and try it. Is everybody in your family going to be okay with it? 
Well, they'll eat when they're hungry. Yeah, try that, dude. It doesn't work out real well sometimes. You know? And it, it's funny. Like, one thing I've learned with Dorothy is turkey doesn't think twice about it. Duck feels like we're turning our backs on them when we eat one. She feels like we're turning our back on our ducks if I eat a duck that we bought from the store. A little harder for her to eat duck than it is to eat turkey. Why? I don't know, but I'm not going to judge my wife for that. But I'm going to take that into consideration from my mainstream meat production off the property now. So in analyzing yourself, I mean you, but also your whole family unit. Everybody's going to be on that homestead. If you're one person, it's an easier analysis, but it's a lot more work because you have nobody to share it with. You also have to ask yourself, how much can you store? How much can you really store? I've seen people, I'm going to do 50 chickens. Really? What are you going to do with them all? I'll freeze them. You have a deep freezer? Uh, yeah, a small one. Do 50 chickens fit in there? <laughs> and I mean, so that, you know, so that means maybe you can do it, but you're going to have to part them out. Maybe you're going to have to do some as canned birds. You know, maybe you, you take all your frames and make stock and can your stock. But you need to ask yourself, like, how much can you store? And do you have a plan to store your production? Because it's amazing sometimes how much even small systems can produce. Um, how much time a week do you really have to do things? And you got to be honest about this because you got to put in your job, your family time. I played that song for you yesterday. If that didn't punch you in the heart, you, you ain't human, right? You got to you got to think about how much time needs to be dedicated to your family, your kids, your wife, your dog taking a walk, whatever. Um, your studies, and I don't care if you're in school or not. You should be studying every day. Hopefully that this show is kind of a little bit of studying for you. You should be educating yourself, I guess is the way I should say every day. Uh, your quality of life, things like that. Because what you'll say is, well, when I'm in my garden or when I'm taking care of my animals, I feel good and I enjoy it. I do too. But there's a point of diminishing returns after so much work when you when you kind of move to more like a farmer level. So you want to ask yourself, do I even want do I want to do that to myself? Do I want to make sure that I keep everything so small that I always enjoy it? And for a lot of people, you'll be better off if you do. I'm, I'm just telling you. Um, so that's something you really want to answer. And you really need to answer this question, honestly. Can you do some basic maintenance every morning and every evening? So before if you have a regular nine to five job, do you have a half hour where you can go out and let the chickens out and make sure they have water and food or something like that. And in the evening, you have that time. And if you don't, where don't you have it? And then you got to make sure that whatever you bring into your life fits the honest answer to that question. Or you design a system that compensates for it. Because it would be hard for us to do what we do here if every morning I couldn't go out and dump the swimming pools and spend time with the ducks for half an hour. And we've recently hired a young farmhand And I'll get to that in a bit and why I think that's a good idea on a larger homestead. But my wife, one of the first things she said, well, she said, well, well Daisy's here. He can do that. I'm like, no, I, I like to do that. I like to do that. But I also need the time, and I'm fortunate in my lifestyle, the time to do it. That's a very important question to answer yourself honestly. All this is in the show notes, by the way. If you're driving and thinking, I should be writing this down. Just go look up the notes for 1802. Um, and I think that the most important question you can really answer and get precise What do you really want from your homestead? I want all the food that I eat. Okay, that's not going to happen. I'm going to be on. I'm asking you to be honest with yourself about what you want. I'm going to be honest with you about whether you're going to get it or not. Um, very few people produce 100% of their food. If you can produce 50% of your calories consumed, you are doing damn good. And if you can produce 50% of your calories consumed and have to barter for another 10 to 20 of them, you are flying high. 
And I'll hear from somebody, I produce 100%. Good for you, man. Hope you don't like chocolate. Just saying, right? Hope you don't cook with olive oil. I live in the mountains of Kentucky. and Do you grow olive trees? No, you don't use olive oil. What do you fry with? I fry with lard. Hey, man, that's badass if it's really you, but I like to have other things in my life, you know? And I pick and choose what I get the best return for my efforts on back into that return cycle. So what do you want from your homestead? If you want an income, it's going to be different than if you just want a lifestyle. And I think most people, not all, but most people, you would be better to take the idea of an income, unless you need it, in your first year and say that's a great idea. little golden sprinkles on it. You know, a little bit of gold sprinkled on it, a little diamond in the corner, nice and pretty. Let's take that thing, and you know what I'm going to say, if you listen to this show long enough, with a lot of things we do this, I'm going to put it over on the shelf there and dust it off once in a while and make sure it stays clean and pretty, and we're just going to put that away for a year. Let's make this thing provide for us first, and let's survive that first year or two to where we get things ticking. And in that survival, we will find an opportunity, and the opportunity will become the way toward the income. This often works much better than trying to force an income into a system that you haven't even grown a green bean with yet. And that happens all the time with people. I'm going to make a fortune. There's no fortune in farming. I know that video is funny, right, if you haven't seen it. I'll put that. I've got a laugh for you today if you haven't seen it. It's from Michelin Web situation on farming. There will be a link in the show notes today. And uh, it's it's pretty it's British humor, but it's pretty damn funny British humor. But there really isn't a fortune in farming, not at the scale we're talking about. You can scale into a decent living a lot of different ways, but you can go broke too. But if we can make the homestead begin to provide for the homesteaders first, farm provide for the farmers first, then we can find an intelligent way to start tying a revenue model in. But ask yourself all the things you want from your homestead: food quality of life, you know, how much effort you really want to put in versus how much you want to come out, and then sanity check everything. What do you want it to look like? If I just gave if you could draw, because I can't, but if you could draw and I gave you a picture of it and you could just start drawing shit on it, what would it look like? At least see it in your head. And then say, well what's realistic about that? What's ten years from now? What's now? If you do that You'll stay on track, and you won't get sidelined by things that just seem like a, a good idea because I said it on the air, or you read it in a book, or you got it in a magazine, or it's something that was on a forum today, or, or what have you. Some very important things to consider as we get ready to finish up here. Number one, just because it works for someone else doesn't mean it will work for you. I love that a lot of you are keeping ducks because of what you've seen on the Duck Chronicles. I don't love that some of you have gone out and bought a 100 ducks because you're going to sell duck eggs like me and you don't have a market yet. It would be better to get a dozen or two ducks and see if you can develop a small market and determine whether or not to expand it. It's what we did. Um, we started out with 26 birds. And I think six or more of them were drakes. I think we still have a few of those jerks running around out there. But there's nine less of them than there were a week and a half ago, and the flock's a lot happier. We started out with 20-odd birds. We were running chickens. We developed a market for the ducks. We said, this works. And I'll tell you right now, we have kind of a surplus right now. We're kind of worried about it because we're starting to pick up more and more accounts, and we're heading for that molt. That's coming. 
July will be here before we know it, right? But, I mean, God, guys, I didn't move into this property and go buy 150 ducks the first year. We developed, and we developed all of the infrastructure for them and the system behind them and everything else. And if, if I didn't have Dorothy, I couldn't do it. You know, honestly, if I didn't have Dorothy, I might have a whole bunch of drakes running around just for fertility. Because, I, I mean, I mean, and if you, you know, of course, it doesn't work out real well, but, I mean, I couldn't do it without her. She does the, the, the packaging. She does the sales. I think she's picked up like seven commercial accounts. I mean, we had a couple that we got because people found us, but I think she's picked up through like outside sales, which is awesome to see her develop that. Like, so, because I just told her what to do, and then she just, because she didn't think she knew, she just did it and it worked. I think last night she figured it out she's picked up seven commercial accounts. Uh, when I say commercial, I mean small stores, small restaurants, things like that, in a couple of months. So, I mean, it can be done, but we had the horsepower ready to go to do that. All right. So please don't think just because it works for me because, and don't think because something doesn't work. So we didn't really try hard with the chicken eggs, but I just saw it wasn't really worth the effort compared to ducks. Plus I had the chicken problems. But that doesn't mean you couldn't do a chicken model and make it work. I, I talked about this before, but I'll give you the brief idea for it now. You build about four really big, really nice chicken tractors. Inside each chicken tractor is four to six hens and one rooster, and each is a different breed. And they're unique breeds, Wells Summer, things like that. Stuff, stuff that's not just always at tractor supply during chick days. And you sell pullets, and you build a couple big chicken tractors, and you take your chickens... Once they're, they're, they're hatched and you put them in the big chicken tractors, you raise them to between 8 and 14, 16 weeks, and you sell them as almost ready to lay. And instead of selling them for a dollar a chick, you sell them for $15 a bird, which we did. When we sold our laying flock of chickens, we had 80 birds. They were gone in two weeks. I think the least we took for a female was $15. You hatch a certain amount every year. You sell those off. You build small chicken tractors to go with them, like the ones you keep your breeders in. And you sell them off and you give away roosters to people who want a rooster. You cull your roosters uh, out of your hatchlings uh, as they get big enough to cull. You either cull them really young and use them like a Cornish game bird, uh, nice and young and tender, or you let them get bigger and use them as stew chickens, make enchiladas off of them. And, that, and then you, you, you market your chicken eggs. It's the highest quality chicken egg a person can get. You take a limited number of customers. You do it like a CSA only. You require a customer to get four dozen a month. You take a limited number of customers. You sell all your eggs except the ones you can use. You can pay for every damn thing there and make money on the chicken tractors and the pullets. And I don't want to do it. And it's not what I want in my client analysis of myself. So just because something works for me doesn't mean it'll work for you because you may not want to do what I'm willing to do to make it work. And just because something won't work for me doesn't mean it won't work for you because you might be willing to do what I'm not willing to do. This is very important. And it moves right into my next point. Homesteading is not a competitive sport. If you look at my property and you're disgusted because your property is not as far along, that is a mistake and you shouldn't do it. Uh, homestead envy is a bad thing. And the truth is, for a lot of you, in less brittle landscapes, you will pass me up in no time at all. Don't get too taken in by all my green. As we get into June, there's a lot of brown spots showing up. And I just have to accept that that's the way it is, and there's things I'm still working on, and observe and interact and decide where do I go next? Where do I focus my efforts? Because if I try to focus it on all three acres, I will fail. I've learned that. So I have to say, 
of these places that are still not what I want, what are the ones that are the closest to where it is what I want and the least amount of effort to push them over and we just keep expanding out every year and let the birds do the rest of the work. But it's not a competitive sport. Do not compare your progress to somebody else's progress. Because if you think you're ahead of them and it makes you feel good, it doesn't really mean anything. And if you think you're behind them and it makes you feel bad, it doesn't really mean anything. It, it's, it's right in with when I talked about teaching my wife sales. One of the things I told her right away, I said, I learned a long time ago from a guy named Forrest Baker, who was one of my sales mentors at Garrettcom. And he said, Jack, in sales, you get really excited over piddly little shit and you get really depressed over piddly little shit. And when you've matured, you don't get excited over piddly little shit and you don't get depressed over it either. You just do your job. And that's how homesteading has to be. You can be excited over your little victories, but don't be excited over piddly parts of them. And don't get depressed because something fails in a big or a small way. Because it's easy to like, oh, my tomato plant got blight. Oh, big deal. So you're buying tomatoes this summer instead of picking them. That sucks, but you'll learn how to fix it or maybe grow tomatillos next year because they don't get blight, right? You, you got to think that way. You got to think like, you know, our, our recently lost uh, great fighter, Muhammad Ali, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, right? You got to move, you got to dodge, you got to adapt. Next, always remember you may have to sell a property someday. Anything you do, like it's great to live somewhere you can do anything you want, but don't do something that will damage a property and make it difficult to sell. That, that's, that's something you have to consider. Uh, and the bigger the property and the more there is a market for people that are like you, the less you have to be concerned with that, but you still do. And this is about not designing access out of your property and not damaging your structures, not cutting holes in walls just because you thought it was a good idea and putting a cage up against it and screwing stuff up. Always have an exit strategy. Next, admit, accept, and correct mistakes fast. When we realized flat out the chickens were a mistake on this property, they were gone in two weeks, like I just said. Once we made it a decision, we corrected it fast. Right now, I'm, I'm, you know, we're looking at our quail aviary. Is it going to work? I don't know yet. Right now, it's overstocked with quail because I got a bunch in in a straight run. I need to cull. I haven't had time to cull. This weekend, I will be culling. When I get the number down to where it needs to be, we'll see how it works. If I decide, you know what, quail need to be in trackers and rack systems, and this was a great idea, I will turn that aviary into something else. I will not. And even though I was public with it and said, I think this is a great idea, I'm not going to be married to something if it doesn't work the way that I want it to work. And, and you have to be willing to shift gears. And this is why whenever you try something, try to, try to do it in small scale first, see if you like it, and then up the scale. It's much easier to correct. Try to do it with a, with a minimal scale of permanence. If you put a pond in with a bulldozer... It's really hard to change your mind. So make sure you want it where it is. If you build a chicken coop that you have a thousand bucks into, and you're like, this really sucked, and I need to take it down and tear it apart, it's not fun, but it's not, it's not a huge deal, and be willing to. We built a greenhouse here last year uh, out of cattle panels off Texas Southern Prepper's design, uh, and we used the, the Tough Tex plastic greenhouse material. Uh, the stuff that's like panels, 12 foot by, I think, 26-inch panels. And we put them on with furring strips. That seemed like a great idea. It doesn't really work. I don't like it. The greenhouse, I don't like it. I'm gonna, I have money into it. I have time into it. I have effort into it. I ran a class where we did it. It's still going to get disassembled. So it's it's going to get repurposed in different ways. 
And if I'm going to have a greenhouse, I'm going to frame a freaking regular framed greenhouse. Because after several different attempts to break the mold, I've determined that is what will work best here. I've done, I've done the experimental thing with that. It wasn't that critical to me. It wasn't that important to me. Uh, but now I think eventually we want a greenhouse, and it's going to be made with a framed-out system using tough text paneling, standard doors, not having the shifting, these weird ends and stuff like that. And I believe that model can work, but it would be so much work for me to take apart what I need to take apart and change what needs to be changed to make it work the way that it is that it just makes sense to repurpose it and do it in a way that makes a hell of a lot more sense for me. That that Texas Prepper greenhouse model is best to get good quality greenhouse film and put film over it. And that way all the little weird things we dealt with with the paneling, you don't care about. The paneling works really good in straight walls, and they have little wood things that the paneling, the, it's like rippled paneling, like, uh, like for a, t you know, like when you have a, a roofing material, the roofing panels that are like rippled. It's that same ripple pattern, and they make these, these wooden furring strips, and you, you screw them onto a, a, wherever you're attaching them, and then it fits right into them, and you're good. Well, then that's what we're gonna do. Cause I could frame out a, a much larger structure for less money and in less time. And it could have been done last year. So I, that's another mistake that I'm willing to admit. When you make a mistake, admit it, accept and correct it. Including just blow it up. That just was a bad idea. I'm just going to take it away and do something else. Right? Um, next, always be willing to take a step back. If you're starting to feel like maybe it's a mistake, but you're not sure yet, back the hell off and really analyze it and ask yourself, am I, you know, sometimes that'll catch you halfway through the mistake before you're completed. And you'll realize this really isn't going to work. And you feel committed, like, oh, i got to go through with it. No, you don't. No, you don't. I look at it like hiring the wrong employee. When I hired employees, if, it, if in the first day that they were there, I could tell, they're not going to work out. I'd pay them for a week and send them off. You're done. It's not going to work. Well, I was just here a day. and Yeah, but you're, it's not going to work. You, 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 we hired you in a sales position. You're afraid to make a phone call. You need to go do something else. Here's a week's pay. Go. You said you could do this. You can't. Um, I, I remember advising uh, my buddy Brian Black, first employee he ever had. He started telling me about the guy. I'm like, why isn't he fired yesterday? And every system you decide to build, every technique you decide to employ, every garden bed you put in, you need to look at it as an investment. And that's what an employee is in a business. They're an investment. If they're not producing a positive return, they have to go. Now, sometimes you can have an employee who doesn't put it, produce a direct positive return, but they provide the support so that four other employees that do can actually produce it. That's okay. So you can have a system like that. This system in of itself is not a positive return, but it's connected to these four others, and therefore it's viable. But if it's taking more energy than you're getting back, It's not sustainable. It's going to burn you out. It's going to cost you money. It's not going to work. Correct it. Also, always be willing, or, uh, or I'm sorry, understand that most animals will bind you to your property. If you have our ducks, they got to be fed every day. Their eggs got to be collected every day. They got to be put to bed every day. Their wealth and uh, health and welfare has to be checked on every day because we don't have large ponds or lakes. Their, their, their pools have to be dumped every day. All of this has to be done. Somebody has to do it. 
which means when I want to go out of town, it's not like it used to be where we could just take the two dogs to a kennel and say, see you in a week, dogs, and the dogs are like, okay, we're staying here. No, we need a person to live on the property for a week to leave for a week. That usually costs us about 700 bucks a week just in paying somebody to maintain the property. Because the property actually produces a profit, we'll lose money that week. Just to be clear, we will lose money that week. But there's enough surplus that we can take a few vacations a year and pay somebody to do that. And if if if, if we didn't have that, we couldn't leave. So think before you add animals that are going to bind you to the property. There are animals, I said most, there are animals that you can easily leave for a day or two. Uh, Brad Davies has his quail set up. He can leave for a week. He can leave for a week. Maybe have a guy come over once or twice to check on a few things and refill a couple of things, and it's good, right? Um, you can set up chickens with automatic doors and stuff where you can leave for a day or two. But in the end, those you know, just the welfare of the animals needs to be checked on. Something breaks, something doesn't work, and you're not there. You got starving animals. That's irresponsible. Um, so understand before you start adding animals and lots of animals, especially that you have a, a responsibility to them and you will, you, you, you can begin to feel like basically they own you. Like you're the queen bee, so to speak. People think the queen's in charge. She's not. She's a slave. She's there to serve the hive. And that's, that's how the animals are. You're there to serve them. They might provide for you, but in the end, you're there to serve them as their caretaker, as their handler, you know? Um, definitely consider hand, hiring part-time help if you have a budget. We hired a young guy. We're paying 10 bucks an hour. That's pretty good for a young person. Three hours a day, three days a week. And the chief thing we have this guy doing is he collects the eggs, takes care of the quail, washes the eggs and packages. And that just takes about an hour to do, hour and a half. And then I give him something else to do. And that gives Dorothy three days a week that she doesn't have to do that. She's been doing that every day for over a year. And that frees her. Sometimes to do something else, and sometimes to just not do it. And then I have been doing a lot of stuff that's not hard, but it's piddly little shit I haven't been able to get to. Big pile of rocks, move this, right? Pick up some you know wood debris, plant some bushes, stake some small seedlings, things like that. Things that I could easily do. I just only have so much time every day. And even if he's doing that for an hour to an hour and a half, three days a week. You know, that's three, four hours of work a week that gets done that just wouldn't get done because even though it really needs to be done, there's other things that need to be done more. And to pay 90 bucks a week for that, for me, it makes perfect sense. For you, you may say, I can't afford to do that. Okay? Then you need to not put yourself in a position where you require that additional labor. And and, and you start to start thinking to tighten those systems up. And, you know, my hope is to get this property within the next two years to a place where the actual work goes down. Now, if we have as many ducks, there's going to be just as much work cleaning and washing eggs, but all these other things I'm talking about, this kind of keeping things in bound stuff, I want to get to a point where we're kind of done with it. And I think we're well on our way to it. Again, if you look at the videos, you can see the difference. Uh, and then the other thing is, if you have stuff that needs to be done, like structure, Access, okay, water, stuff that really needs to be done. Put in rain gutters and rain catchment to have water for your garden, and you know you'd be better off with it, and you just don't have time to do it, or you don't have the confidence that you'll do it right, and you don't want to make costly mistakes. Hire it the hell out. Get 
a handyman, get a contractor, get someone you can rely on. And when you know you need something done, if you have the budget for it, just pay somebody to do it and make sure they do it right. And you'll find that a good handyman can be worth their weight in gold. Because all of the stuff that you want to do, you know exactly how you want it done, you could do it, you just don't have time, gets done. And those are different. So, you know, hiring like a small farmhand or something like that, generally those aren't the kind of people that are going to go put, you know, gutters on a, a, an 1,800-square-foot barn for you. They just not the kind of thing that generally that type of labor is going to do for you. And what happens is you're paying somebody hourly doing work like that. It's not really something they do every day. It ends up costing you more than hiring a pro that comes in, bids it for a price, and does it and gets it done. And if he goes long on it, it's his problem. He bid it wrong. Sorry. But with your handymans and whatnot, let me give you a piece of advice. A case of beer at the end of a job goes a long way to them taking your job when they, you need them to do another one. That's something I always try to do. I'll ask guy right to me, what kind of beer do you drink? If you don't drink beer, what do you, you know, what do you like? You like soda, whatever. And, you know, the guy says he likes Bud Light. Man, I don't buy Bud Light unless it's for somebody else. But, you know, it'll be a 30-pack of Bud Light cans, cold ones, that I'll have ice down for them on the last day of the job. And I think that makes a big impact on people. And what's it cost you, 15 bucks? That stuff's cheap. There's a reason. If you drink it, you know it's not the greatest beer in the world. In the end, though, kind of what I want to get at is you're going to make mistakes. Just try to stick to ones you can correct. It's okay to make mistakes. Just try to stick to things that, like, aren't that hard to fix. Again, giant holes in the ground are hard to fix. Holes in the wall of a building are hard to fix. Um, large amounts of materials in the wrong place are hard to fix. Um, a chicken tractor that wasn't designed perfectly, you can redesign it. You can probably get by until you build a new one. And, and, and try to try to stick to stuff like it. putting a garden in, and you do some things wrong with it. It's usually easy to fix. Usually easy to replace. Usually easy to just erase if you really put it in the wrong place. You spread it out, and it's a nice lawn, and you put it where it should have been in the first place. But the bigger mistakes, permanent fencing, right? Hard to fix. That's why I was going to put a lot of money into my fencing. I was going to hire someone like the last piece of advice and get fencing just like it's all around the property done. And I said, you know what? I got I got these cinder blocks sitting around here. I don't need a red jackhammer. I don't need to hire a contractor. I can buy a couple hundred dollars worth of materials and some sackcrete, and I can put these little fences in. And if I don't like them, I can just take them down. And they work out pretty good. And I'm following the Joel Salton thing. If, it, if a temporary fence isn't in a place for three years, and after three years you don't still love it, don't put a permanent one in. And it's been actually a really smart thing to do because I've been able to make it better by adding more fencing and more sectioning because I had the flexibility to do so and I didn't have a bunch of money sunk into it. So that's just try to make the mistakes in, in a simple way. You know, make, make the mistakes fast, correct them fast, and, and make minimal mistakes. That's why I want you to go slow in your first year and do small things your first year. Because small things are much easier to correct than big things when you do them wrong. With that, I, I want to remind you, um, I mentioned today, a really great video on a composting system. It's just one of the many things you get if you're a member of the Support Brigade. If you'd like to support this show, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there. I've also had a lot of you guys that are expiring lately, and I've been running some win-back campaigns for those of you that expire and uh, don't renew your membership. And not, but those are people that, like, something goes wrong in PayPal and your account doesn't renew. And I've been sending emails about that. If you are an expired member and you'd like to renew uh, with a really great incentive and you haven't gotten an email from me due to blocking or something, email me today, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. 
and put TSPC Renew in the subject line. Tell me your username so I can make sure you actually are an expired member, and I'll give you a really great deal to renew. Everybody else, consider signing up if you haven't already. You support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. You get all this great content. You get all the, all the discounts, all the extra stuff in the MSB, uh, and it's 50 bucks a year or 5 bucks a month. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members in Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps. First responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you guys qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join, TSPC service discount in the subject line, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Learn more there. And then the easiest way to support this show, the way that, I mean, if you like the show, there's no reason not to do it. If you're going to shop on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com or tspaz.com, you will magically appear at Amazon. You will do your shopping, and uh, then when you buy your stuff, we'll get paid for it. Now, we did learn something today from somebody that emailed me. If you use the Amazon app, and then like you put a bunch of stuff in your shopping cart for later, and then you later on go to tspaz.com and that stuff's already in there and you buy it, we don't get credit. That kind of sucks. But So if you want to actually support us, I know it sucks to not be able to use the app, But just go through your browser, tspaz.com, your phone, your tablet, your computer. It all goes to the same place. Search for, add your items, and check out, and uh, we'll get credit for that order. And that helps support the work we do, and it's very little effort from your end. Also consider doing business with other members of the community at the TSP Business Directory. You can find that at tspbiz.com. A great way to do uh, business with other members of the TSP community. Our supporting member of the business directory today is Meticulous, a small web agency in central Virginia. Provides design and consulting services to technical customers around the globe. From web to mobile, digital to print, static to motion, they can help you survive, uh, solve your design needs for product development. So if you're in any development needs, consider Meticulous for your web work. You can learn about them at the business directory, or you can click on their link in today's show notes. With that wrapped up, I could not think of a better song for today than one I've played for you quite a few times, uh, Josh Thompson, Way Out Here, because we're talking about homesteading today. But my closing thoughts on Way Out Here is, Way Out Here is a mindset. I think a lot of people have the dream of having that huge homestead or that big back 40 or something like that and being out in the sticks. And like I said yesterday, talking about Montana, the idea of the elbow room, I dig it. I like it. But I kind of feel way out here all the time. You know, we have our ducks running around in our, our backyard and we have our, you know, just it, it looks like farm country. Those of you who've been here know. But I'm 15 minutes from downtown Fort Worth. I'm two minutes from HOA hell down the road. I've seen some of the stuff I've seen on next door those people deal with with each other. I, I can't imagine living just, you know, a mile and a half from here. So I'm not really way out here. But even if you are in a suburb, a suburban homestead, you know, like I used to have in, in uh, Arlington, I think the concept of being a homesteader and being able to produce for yourself and having the way out here attitude is more about a mindset than your geography. You know, the opening line to this song, our houses are protected by the good Lord in a gun, and you might meet them both if you come out here not welcome, son. Well, yesterday we heard about a, a guy in, uh, in, uh, in Pennsylvania with a pharmacy, and some guy came there not welcome, and he met, I don't know if he met the good Lord, but he met a gun. And he, he's not causing problems for anybody. That's a mindset that I will protect my family, I will protect my home, And I don't want to hurt anybody, but if you mean to hurt me, I'll hurt you back. That's that's a mindset. The, the concept that you won't take something you haven't earned, 
is a mindset. The concept that you not only won't take something you've earned, but you actually want to develop in your life freedom and independence and liberty and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. That's not about where you live. That's about how you think and what you do. Homesteading's for everyone. One of the concepts I found in this show on so many years ago was the concept of going from home to homestead. With a home being a place with four walls and a roof that costs you money every month because you need a place to stay, and a homestead being something that provided more than a dwelling for you, that provided for you, that gave you multiple returns on your time and your money that goes into maintaining it and having it and paying for it and servicing it. This is a mindset. Way out here, even if you're close in there. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. By the good Lord and a gun And you might meet them both If you show up here not welcome, son Our necks are burnt Our roads are dirt And our trucks ain't clean The dogs run loose We smoke, we chew and fry everything Out here Way out
John Deere. Yeah, John Wayne, Johnny Cash, and John Deere. Way out here. Way out here. Our houses are protected by the good Lord and a gun. And you might meet them both if you show up here, not welcome, son. <laughs> 